My name is Andrew Gamison, and as always, it is my privilege to welcome you to the Speaking For Him podcast. I really do enjoy doing this show every single week, and I hope that it gives you some encouragement on this journey that we call the Christian life. As we've been ramping up to our 10th anniversary in October, I've really been considering how thankful I am for the number of people that have contributed to the podcast over the years and how they have encouraged me in this endeavor. I never would have thought at the beginning of this project that I could necessarily be looking back after 10 years and still see it going strong. We've weathered a lot of storms uh, throughout this process, including the departure of not one, but two co-hosts, and then a pandemic uh, which caused the third co-host to not be able to work with me when the radio station closed down. So we've gone through three co-hosts, a radio studio, and now here we are in my home studio, and we are still going strong, still producing weekly content, and we're well over 500 episodes, and as I said, cruising into our 10th anniversary and we will reflect more on that at the end of the show with another clip from the Speaking for Him scrapbook. But I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude for everyone that has prayed for us, everyone that has contributed on air to the podcast and helped us in any way. I am very thankful for all of you. And if anybody has any reflections that they want to share for us for our 10th anniversary show, please go ahead and send me a voicemail or an email, or uh, reach out to me by phone. If you know me and you have my phone number, we really want to get any input we can on the 10th Anniversary Spectacular. Adam McNutt is going to be on with me. We are not sure whether that will be in person or via Zoom yet, but he will be here, and I'm really excited about that. So just keep that in mind and be thinking about what you may want to contribute. I'd love to have as many people involved as possible. As I said, we are going to look back into the archives and have another clip at the end of the show. But before we do that, we have a lot to get to. And the main segment of this show will be my review of Courageous Legacy. For those of you who may not be familiar, Courageous is a 2011 motion picture By the Kendrick Brothers. Now the Kendrick Brothers are known also for such hit movies as Facing the Giants and Fireproof that have really helped people in a lot of ways through entertainment. It's amazing the powerful tool that entertainment can be to promoting a positive and Christ-centered message. And the Kendrick Brothers have really bought into that vision, and made big things happen from that vision. And Courageous is definitely an example of that. I was really grateful for the re-release because I think to this day that Courageous is the best film they've ever produced. Even though they've done a few films since Courageous, it's just so powerful. Especially when I think about the vision of Speaking for Him, which is to encourage families to get back to the blueprint of the Word of God. And the focus of Courageous is on how we need courageous fatherhood, how fathers are an irreplaceable part of society. 
the world today tells you that gender is fluid and that everybody has the same roles, that no one is created for a specific role, but our God tells us differently. And I'm so grateful for the way that Courageous presents these important ideas. So I'm excited to jump into that with you as the podcast goes on. But before we dive into that review, I want to share with you what is going on. Well, as schools prepare to ramp up for the fall, we are seeing schools take action on different policies of conduct. The first story that I want to talk to you about is one where a Wisconsin school district said, we are not going to allow for any Black Lives Matter or pride flags in our classrooms this year. We are going to keep these classrooms politics free. Now, to be fair, this includes things like Make America Great Again and other conservative flags like Blue Lives Matter. But I think this is significant. It's a pride flag too political for the classroom. That was the topic of a heated discussion tonight at Kettle Moraine School Board meeting. Our Cassidy Williams is live there with exactly what happened tonight. No doubt emotions were flying, Cassidy. Yeah, they were merry. And here at Kettle Moraine High School, you can see that in the cafeteria, there's an American flag hanging. But if a teacher wants to hang up a pride flag, that's no longer allowed. And there are strong opinions on both sides. In a place that's normally known for being quiet. Not controversial. I am not political. I am a person. Students and parents loudly share their opinions with the Kettle Moraine School Board. I don't see a good reason for this policy. Almost every inch of the library was filled Tuesday evening because at last month's board meeting, the school board voted to ban teachers from having pride flags in classrooms or listing pronouns in email signatures, saying it was too political. The fact is that the majority of students don't want or need this, so catering to the minority only encourages the envelope to be pushed further. Several people spoke in support of the policy, but the majority of public comment was strongly against it. Pride flags are not me taking a political stance. They are a statement saying I accept myself and others. Public comment was capped after an hour despite a call from the crowd to extend it. It's unclear how many people plan to speak either for or against. And in the end, the board voted unanimously to keep the policy. All the first thing I want to say about this issue is that I believe that a lot of these issues are on a pendulum swing. So I feel like in the past, since 2020 especially, we've swung, we've swung so far to one side and now we're starting to see the swing back to the other side. And how, why do I say that? I say that because there have been so many instances where someone has worn a conservative t-shirt or worn a Make America Great Again cap at school or whatever the case may be and they get told that they can't wear it because it's too political or bring it to school because it's too political. And then the same school that says that hangs BLM flags and pride flags. So I think this response 
by the West, this Wisconsin school board is simply to say, let's focus on education. Let's not focus on these issues, which are personal issues. I mean, the bottom line is, regardless of where you stand morally, and I stand morally opposed to uh, gay pride uh, and BLM because they go against biblical truth, but regardless of that, there used to be a time when you never talked about your sexuality in public. It wasn't a part of everyday conversation. You didn't walk up to someone and say, I am this or I am that. You just didn't. It wasn't polite conversation. And now it's become the defining characteristic of our society. And this big celebratory moment when you admit that you're something outside of the norm. And so I think that this school board is just saying, let's get back to the basics of education. And so I just think that this is a, this is a very positive step. And I hope that people will realize that it is indeed that. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting. There was a, a clip of audio in that story where this girl said, I am not a political stance. I am a person. And the idea of having black lives matter flags or pride flags in your classrooms does not determine your personhood. You are a person. You are worthy of respect. You are worthy of love because you are valuable and you are made in the image of God. But you don't need a pride flag or a BLM flag to show that respect. As a matter of fact, particularly in terms of BLM, they are anything but respectful because they have said on their website, we are Marxists and we want to destroy the nuclear family. So why is it? that we have this society where this faction is seeking actively to destroy, and yet we act like it's a positive thing. And so I applaud this Wisconsin school board for making this decision, and I hope that it will yield positive things for the children in that school. Um, I know it's tough because no matter what decision you make, no matter what stance you take, you will be alienating some people. Um, I saw a C.S. Lewis quote that was really interesting. Um, and it says, if everyone is running toward a cliff and you're running the opposite direction, you're going to look like you're out of your mind. Even though in reality to, run toward a cliff is the position that is insane. And that's really where our society is right now. Uh, another analogy would be the, the joke about the old man who's uh, driving and his wife calls him and says, somebody, some lunatic's driving the wrong way on the highway. Be careful. And he said, well, where I am, there's, 40 lunatics driving the wrong way. Well, it just so happens that he's the one that is driving the wrong way. So we need to base our 
beliefs and our standards, not on the culture, not on the winds of culture, not on the winds of change, but on the unchanging standard of Jesus Christ. Well, continuing on in the area of education, my next story comes out of Florida where a Christian school is making sure that people understand that they hold a biblical standard of sexuality. She was scared she was going to open her mouth and, and, and expose herself, right? But she's not scared anymore. Tonight, a mother opens up about her decision to remove her lesbian daughter from a Christian school with a policy that gay students are not welcome. Good evening, I'm Jennifer Lee. I'm Keith Kate. Thank you for joining us tonight. Grace Christian School in Valrico says it will only refer to students by their sex assigned at birth and notified parents that gay and transgender students would be asked to leave the school immediately. That prompted at least one parent to transfer her child to another school. Justin Checker spoke with that mom tonight, and he joins us live in the Tampa News Center with more. Justin. Keith and Jen, NBC News first obtained the email from June outlining the Grace Christian School's human sexuality policies. Now, it told the parents you have to agree with them before your student may start the new school year. The mother I spoke with says she had to make a change for her daughter's well-being. From what I read, it's not a new policy, but that was the first time I was made aware of the policy in that email. This Hillsborough County mother of a 16-year-old lesbian daughter asked to conceal her identity for fear of harassment. I am accepting. I love my children. I don't care. Um, but there's families that I know of that really have more than a hard time with their children being gay, and it's sad. All of her children have attended the Grace Christian School in Valrico, but after reading Administrator Barry McKean's June 6th email, she says she couldn't send her youngest daughter back there for her junior year. I actually respect their opinion, but my daughter's well-being, right, and mental health is more important. According to the email obtained by NBC News, the school will only refer to students by their sex assigned at birth. It also states any form of homosexuality or transgender identity is, quote, sinful in the sight of God and the church. The email goes on to say students who are found participating in these lifestyles will be asked to leave the school immediately. I have to say about that school, they're there's some loving teachers at that school. There's teachers at that school that know a lot of these children are gay for sure, and they still love them. This mom says her youngest daughter never faced discrimination at the Grace Christian School, but at times she felt left out. Before enrolling her at another private school, she asked the owner. Well, I just want to know if it's Christian-based, and he said, yes, it is. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you up front, my daughter is gay, and I don't know, you know, would that be a problem? He said, no, God loves everybody. Okay, so again, just a couple things about this story. First of all, I feel like this is a gotcha kind of story because we're talking about a Christian school in Florida. A Christian school, and on top of that, a Christian school in a conservative state, and you're shocked that they want to have a biblical view of sexuality. This, to me... Smells of all the times that liberal TV shows will have Kirk Cameron on and ask his opinion on marriage just so they can act incensed when he gives an opinion that's contrary to what they believe, even though they already know what he's going to say. That's the first thing that I would say about this story. 
The second thing that I would say about this story is that it's interesting that this was even a story because the lady in the story who is concealing her identity for this interview says, I understand their opinion. So if you understand their opinion, then where is the story? I, I just don't understand. The The fact of the matter is the Bible has a view on sexuality. You can disagree with it if you want. You can say that it's outdated. You can say that it's irrelevant, but you can't say that the Bible doesn't say it. As a matter of fact, a few years ago, there was a Bible that came out called the Queen James Bible, where they changed certain key passages on the topic of homosexuality. There would be no need for that kind of Bible if you could just simply explain away those passages. The Bible is very clear on sexuality as a gift from God to be used in the correct way. And so I think it's really strange to have this big news story about a Christian school saying we are going to hold fast to the Judeo-Christian ethic that sex has moral parameters, that being a man and a woman, and within the confines of, of marriage. I'm sure that they would also say that promiscuity among heterosexuals is not allowed. It's interesting that they focus only on the homosexual issue, but I'm, I'm reasonably positive that they would say the same thing about the heterosexual issue because that is just as much an affront to God as, as anything else. Um, and I also think that even though they talked about finding out people were engaged in these activities as being grounds for dismissal, I don't think that simply the fact of being gay would necessarily remove you from the school so much as actively engaging in it and promoting it while you are on school grounds. I really do believe that that would be um, the greater uh, interpretation of what is being said here. The third thing and probably final thing on this particular story is she mentioned something in there about how she loves her daughter so she doesn't care that she is gay. And I think we have come to a place in our culture where we misinterpret what love really means. It's like a meme that I saw, you know, where it says, be careful what you hate because it might affect someone you love or something to that effect. Basically saying that if you actively and vocally disagree with an alternative lifestyle, that you are hating the person. So that would come down to your definition of hate. If you're going to say that I hate you because I disagree with you on your lifestyle on the basis of what the Bible says, then I guess I hate you. But my position as a believer in Jesus Christ is that because I love you, I want to share with you the truth of the Bible and how to live the most abundant life, which means living the life that God created you to live. I say this verse a lot, but it applies again here. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. It would be much better to have a friend who is willing to point out your blind spots than to have an enemy 
who simply lets you live the life you want to live, even though the end of that path is destruction. So we need to get beyond that and realize that real friends call people on the carpet when needed. My next story and final news item of the day is yet another school-related item. A four-year-old in California was threatened with police involvement when they showed up to school without a mask. The video going viral of a California principal calling the police on a four-year-old for showing up to school without a mask. Here she comes, pulling him out of class. I want him here. He is a lovely child. We're here to support and serve him. Our district policy has changed. Thank you. I'm going to have to have you removed from campus. Okay. You will. All right. Police officer, police officer, remove a four-year-old from campus. Wow. After that video was posted, the school district dropped the mask policy, citing lower levels of COVID cases. The father of that four-year-old, Sean, and his attorney, Tracy Henderson, join me now. Sean, you know, if you didn't record this, I don't think people would have believed that this took place. Tell us what led up to this moment where your four-year-old got kicked out of school. But not only that, the police were called as well. I, I have multiple recordings of encounters with what school is previous to this, but I put it on the I put it on the registration documentation. I was looking for accessibility options. I was looking for um, I was looking for accessibility options. I was looking for compromise with the masking situation. I knew my son would have trouble with this. He's had trouble at doctor's offices, dentist's offices. The only thing I'm getting from from I, the only thing I got from Laura, um, Board President Laura Blakely was a cut and paste response. The only thing I got from back from the principal was a cut and paste response. The superintendent of schools, when I when me and my wife met with him, he said schooling is compulsory at six years old in California, so he doesn't have to come to school this year. He, and when we said we're not going to comply with the mandate, he said, well, he's going to be denied school. That's not something I, I expect from an educator. I expect them to be advocates for students. I expect for them to stand up and admit students to campus, allow them to attend, and and basically allow that accessibility. This, these are things that are guaranteed through the Rehabilitation Act, through the Americans with Disability Act, through the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And they're acting as medical enforcement without medical licensure. I'm completely outraged because I'm a paramedic by trade. They're not giving informed consent. They're not giving right of refusal. And they're weaponizing, um, they're weaponizing coercion by denying access to public services. I'm I'm livid about this. Well, Sean, the superintendent of the school released a statement saying our primary responsibility as a school district is the safety of students and staff members in order to create a peaceful learning and working environment for all on our campuses. Sadly, our schools are caught in a precarious position between groups who have strong opinions about COVID protocols and masking on both sides. And the school district ended up changing their mask policy after this incident. What's your reaction to that? I, I think it's wordplay. Everything I've gotten from the school district is wordplay. Absolute. It just, just work around, just work around, denial. That's all I've been met with. They, it, it's been completely illegal and completely illogical from what I've, what I've 
what I've seen. I saw the I saw the presentation on uh, on the community update on Friday, the board meeting. All their data is cherry picked. I sent them a bunch of uh, non biased data that completely contradicts what's been sent to them. And then if you see the community update that's on the on the school website, anybody who's anti mask they're cutting them off. Anybody who's pro-mask, they're letting them talk on and on and on. So it's essentially become a censorship type relationship that the board is the the board and the superintendent is facilitating, trying to silence opinion. But there's a lot of parents that are sick of it, yeah. and they've actually been reaching out to us to join California uh, Mountain View Parents United against what the school board is doing because they are completely tone deaf. Well, Tracy, you say the school broke the law by sending Sean's son home. How so? So the greatest act of trust that we have across the state of, of, of California, across America, is we drop our children off at school every day. And we entrust educators with the most important thing in our lives, our precious children. And what they did is not only break that trust, but they broke the law. There never was a legal mandate. It's the greatest misinformation campaign perpetuated on California educators across the state across the state of California. And the best analogy I can draw from the viewers is the federal case that took masks off airplanes. The CDC had no authority to mask anybody on an airplane. It's the same issue here in California. The CDPH, the teachers' unions, and really poorly equipped lawyers bullied and coerced educators into believing there was a mandate, and this is one of the results. Okay, so to you who are listening, this may seem like a backtracking of issues because I've talked about masks and masking before, but I just want to review some of my response to this and my response to the issue overall. I remember when COVID first broke out and we were told that we needed to close things down for three weeks to stop the spread. I will never forget it because I was working at Potter's house Christian school at the time. And they said we needed to leave school for three weeks uh, to stop the spread. We were going to go four weeks because the week after that was spring break. We figured we'd have a full four weeks and maybe we would be in a better position to return to school because we were stretching it a little bit longer. And every few weeks for the next, like, I don't know, close to, you know, three or four months, the governor would come out and extend the lockdowns. And I understand closing things down for three weeks at the beginning of COVID. We didn't know what we were dealing with. It was spreading quickly. It was very severe, especially in the early going. You notice that the later variants have been less severe. Uh, And so I, I understood the initial steps taken to try to curb things as they go. But my thought process when we went into COVID lockdowns was the idea that you close down the school and you spend the two weeks that we were closed down or the three weeks that we were closed down deep cleaning the school and thinking about the protocols that you're going to change and follow when you come back to school so that you can come back to school and give the kids a healthy safe environment. And I really felt like that should have been the approach of our leadership and the government too, is like not how long do we need to stay closed, but how can we as businesses stay open? How can we as a society continue to function within the context of COVID? 
And I understand that certain things needed to change. But I think, well, there's two big things that I've thought throughout this whole pandemic response process that I want to bring to the table. First of all, if you are going to have masking, then the biggest thing that needed to happen is there needed to be exceptions. Because as I've said multiple times on this podcast, there are no one-size-fits-all solutions. There's no one-size-fits-all solutions for medication. And I don't think there was a one-size-fits-all solution for masking either. People needed to be willing to object on a personal or a medical basis. And I think the fact that there was no nuance allowed and the fact that there was no understanding allowed... I think that was a big part of it. Even in the way they continue to market the vaccine, they're just like, it's safe for everybody. When they release it to a new age group, they're like, it's it's safe for everybody in that age group, and they don't allow for any instances where it's not. And when you have people who are willing on social media to say, I got the vaccine, and this was the reaction that I had to it, so maybe if you have similar issues to me, you shouldn't get it, they were shut down these views were taken off and it became the vaccine is the only way to go. You see, I've never been against the vaccine as a thing, but when you say the vaccine is the only way to go, then it's an agenda. It's no longer about uh, caring about the individual because there are so many well-established drugs that have been used for 20 years that they have on commercials where they say, if you have these conditions, you shouldn't take them. But we've had situations where we've had two-year-olds kicked off of flights because they wouldn't leave a mask on. We had a situation not too long ago on a flight where a guy was holding his five-year-old daughter on his lap before the plane took off and the flight attendant essentially threatened him with arrest like right off the bat, even though he was just trying to explain that he was just trying to comfort his daughter and let her know that everything was okay. He had purchased her a seat. He planned on her sitting in the seat for the duration of the flight. He was just trying to comfort her before they took off. And yet it was this big thing. And because we're in this situation where it seems like everybody in any level of power has to go out of their way to exert power on the next person. And the biblical view of power is to use it to serve. And then the other part of this story is that the lawyer made the point that these mandates were never laws. We have a legal process in the United States. We have a process through which things can be made law. And the lockdown mandates and the masking mandates never followed that process. I mean, I don't know specifically about other states, but I know that in Michigan, Whitmer went long periods of time without ever meeting with the legislature about these issues. And she basically believed that emergency powers gave her the right to do these things. There was a meme that went around Facebook during the heart of the pandemic, which basically said, if you give elected officials 
unmitigated power during emergencies, they will create emergencies so they can hang on to unmitigated power. And that's not what a good leader should do, but that's what our leaders tended to do. I didn't even know who Anthony Fauci was three years ago, and he became one of the most powerful men in America overnight because as an infectious disease doctor, he was supposedly uh, the end-all be-all of the scientific community during this time. I'm thankful for this father and for people like him. I think it's important for us to realize that we need to stand up for our freedoms because we do possess them. When we as Americans stand up for our freedoms, we're not demanding something that we don't have. We are instead resting on a constitution which acknowledges our rights that come from our creator. Our government today believes that they are the ones that issue us rights, but their actual role is to preserve our rights. I've said before on this podcast that I think a lot of times people get policies and laws mixed up and they allow themselves to be scared into forsaking their freedoms. Schools do this all the time and other entities when they remove God from their daily workings and act like it is the law of the land. Nothing annoyed me more than in the early post-lockdown culture of Michigan when I would go to a place of business and it would say that it was the law of the state of Michigan to wear a mask in each establishment. This was not a law. This was a mandate passed down by the governor, and when her strength was weakened, she weaponized the Department of Health to continue these mandates. But they were never laws so they should not be characterized as such. The second thing to point out about this story is a very sad result of these mandates is employees being put into the precarious position of having to enforce their employer's mandates, which again are not laws. In this story, you see the principal telling this father that he can't bring his son into the school and she threatens him with police involvement if they don't leave. Again, this is a ridiculous overstep of authority, but I feel bad for employees who are told by their administration or their higher-ups that they need to enforce these type of policies. I'll never forget going into a bookstore uh, in that early post-lockdown Michigan and seeing someone sit in the doorway to make sure that you not only have a mask, but that you're wearing it properly. I remember one particular day, I was in the bookstore after a long day at school. I'd worn my mask all day long, and it slid a little low on my nose while I was in the bookstore, and the employee came up to me and said, you need to be wearing your mask correctly. Now, two things I want to say here. First of all, I think that it could have been handled in a nicer manner. Second of all, I do understand that she was placed in the unfortunate position of having it as part of her job description to make sure people were wearing masks correctly. 
but I felt as someone who had been wearing a mask all day long that to act like I didn't care about wearing a mask or following the guidelines was an inaccuracy. And then I found it just a little bit comical how quickly they changed the policy. They claimed in the days following this incident that they changed the masking policy and allowed young kids to come without masks because of lowered COVID numbers. One wonders, though, why they didn't make this decision a week before school started if it was because of lower COVID numbers. Because the reality is COVID numbers have been lower and as previously discussed, the strain of COVID has been less severe of late than it was previously. So these decisions could have been made before the school year commenced a few weeks ago. The reality is that the pressure put on the school district by this man and potentially others like him are what led to this change. So I think that's the one thing that I've learned through this whole COVID process is that when we stand up for our beliefs, change happens. And I do understand that things are waxing worse and worse in this world. And I don't want to go overboard on this, but I've always said, if things are going worse and worse, we need to be prepared for it. But let us as Christians never be a facilitator of things getting worse. As long as we have rights guaranteed to us by the freedoms of this country, we should not be afraid to fight for them. Four-year-olds aren't even anywhere near the top of the risk factor for COVID. And yet, we're still masking these young school children. It's really sad. But above all, we need to trust God for the future. I think that part of this COVID hysteria, if you want to call it that, is because people don't have hope. If you have hope for the next life, then you don't have to be worried as much about how this life pans out. Does that mean you don't take care of yourself? No, it doesn't. Because the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we should glorify God with our body, and part of that is taking care of that body. But secondarily, we know that God has everything in control and that he will take care of us. Okay, now I would like to share with you our quote of the day as we dig into our review of Courageous Legacy. And as I said, I'm really excited about this because Courageous is one of my favorite movies. I think it's very well done. But our quote of the day comes from the movie and it simply says, I'm learning that God wants me to call out the man in my son. And that's Adam Mitchell, who is basically the main character of this film. To give a brief synopsis, this film centers around 
four police officers in the Albany Sheriff's Office and a fifth gentleman named Javi who becomes their, their acquaintance and good friend throughout the course of the film. But the situation is that at the beginning of the film, Adam Mitchell is an okay father. He cares about his kids. He doesn't necessarily know how to relate to his son that well because his son likes running in video games and he doesn't like either of those things. And he often gets too busy at work for his daughter, so he missed her recital. Um, But he decides, after some of the circumstances of the film, that he needs to redouble his efforts to be a better father to his son. Now, as a way of a spoiler alert, one of the impetuses for this is that his daughter, Emily, dies in a car crash, and he realizes that he still has a son that he needs to take care of. He says, there are things I didn't say, there are ways that I failed my daughter, but I don't want to fail my son. And so he's talking about calling out the man and his son. And I have talked about on this podcast how important it was to me that my dad said when I was 13, today you are a man, you should start acting like it. And I was so very grateful that he said that because it was an important thing for me to know. Before we move on, I want to share with you the trailer for Courageous Legacy. I believe every father should step up and answer the call. So where are you, men of courage? Sheriff's office. Thank you, sir. No, thank you. Deputy Thompson has now survived his rookie year. When do you get married? Have some kids. You're going to figure out real quick how much you don't know. You missed Emily's piano recital. Can I talk to you? Can I suggest that you spend a little more time with him? All he wants to do is play video games and go run five miles. What are you doing home? They let me go. Do you really feel like it messed up your childhood not having a dad? More than you know. Adam, I need you to come with me right now. Man, if it wasn't for my family, I'd be in a tailspin right now. You do heal, but you're never the same. I want to know what God expects of me. My life is leading me down the road. I've been doing about half of what I should have been doing as a dad. You're being too hard on yourself. Now I am Revolution. Yeah, you've been a good enough father. I don't want to be a good enough father. Can I say this too? Trying to find my way. I don't feel like I started well. I want to finish well. Gonna do this? Gonna do it right. Something like this needs ceremony. You're like a rich man. As your father, I want the very best from you. I promise to take care of you. So where are you, men of courage? 
I believe every father should step up and answer the call and to say, I will, I will. So there is the trailer for Courageous Legacy. This Legacy Edition was released 10 years after the original in the fall of 2021. And I was just really moved watching this film. I probably teared up four times. And there were so many good scenes that I could have pulled quotes of the day from that it was really hard to come up with the one that I shared with you. So I'm just going to walk you through this film a little bit. Uh, we open as Nathan Hayes is coming to Albany from Atlanta to join their sheriff's department. But we don't know that in the beginning. In the beginning, he's getting gas, and then he realizes that his windshield is dirty, so he goes to clean it, and he leaves the car running, and... uh the door is open and a thug gets in the car and starts driving off with it. Nathan grabs the wheel and basically is dragged along the road trying to fight this guy off. He causes the guy to drive off the road and people are wondering why he's so hung up on taking care of his truck. And he said, I'm not worried about the truck. And then he opens the door to the truck and his little son is there. So this sets up the theme of the movie, which is don't let go of the wheel. Because as as men, and particularly as fathers, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to be leaders in the home and to not let go of the wheel of our family. And so that becomes the motif around which the rest of the film is based. And so then we see uh, a couple days later, we're in the sheriff's office, and he is giving his troops motivation and orders before they go out, and he reads a statistic about the dangers of fatherless homes, and then we see them uh, pursuing some drug dealers, and so there's an action-packed sequence there, and then we see him coming home from a rough day at the office, uh, talking about how he can't relate to his son and how he missed his daughter's recital so this is really the beginning of the film this idea that he is an okay dad but he's not really clued into his kids and then the fateful decision to let emily go to a birthday party causes her death because a drunk driver hits the vehicle she's riding in and she dies and of course that tears him up and these scenes tore me up too they just made me remember when my brother died. I remember that day so vividly. I remember him being rushed to the hospital in an ambulance. Um, and I remember just praying to God that he would be able to come home with my parents. Um, but I remember so clearly my parents coming home empty-handed and saying that John went to heaven to be with the Lord. Um, and I will never forget how tore up my dad was in that moment. And we all struggled from that time on uh, to deal with the loss of my brother. We all struggled in different ways and in varying degrees, but we all struggled. And it ended up being a, a, 
a blessing in disguise for me because it really was a turning point in my Christian faith and a time of reaffirmation of my Christian faith happened a year later, which indirectly led to this podcast because when I was 14, I said, I will share Christ wherever you make the path clear. Um, So just show me your direction and lo and behold, many years later, God allowed for the beginning of speaking for him and the beginning of this podcast. And I'm so grateful. And so we move on through this film and we see Javi, who's a dedicated father. He's working construction. He loses his job. He has a hard time finding another job. And then he actually is walking, looking for a job, crying out to God for help. And Adam Mitchell, Alex Kendrick's character calls out to him and says, Javier, I've been waiting for you. Cause it turns out later in the film that he was waiting for a different Javier, but this Javier, Javier Martinez goes and works for him on his shed only to find out that the original Javier that was supposed to be there was laid up in the hospital. So God works this out for Javi to get a job and he does such good work that, um, Adam puts in a word for him at the thread factory. He gets a job there. And then we have Shane. He's the divorced dad and he's dealing with bitterness from that. And the fact that his son is being told lies about him. And, uh, we have a young guy that we don't find out until about halfway through the movie or a little bit more that he even is a father, but all these people, kind of intersect with each other's life and start encouraging them. And, and Adam, after much research decides I'm going to make a resolution to be a better father. And he writes out this resolution and he calls his buddies together and he says, I'm going to sign this resolution to be a better dad. He said, I don't want to just be a good enough dad. I want to be the dad that God called me to be. And he says, I just called you here because I want you to hold me accountable. And they all, one by one, agree to sign it themselves. And then one of their wives says this needs to be a major ceremony. So they plan to make it a big deal. And then they show them having the ceremony, committing to these things. And they read different parts of the resolution as they sign and agree by God's grace to do what the resolution says. And one thing that I really like about this film is uh, some films, actually a lot of films have this buttoned up happy ending that some people can say is too saccharine and too unrealistic. And I like the fact that this film really deals in realism because it talks about the grieving process for, uh, the Mitchell family, when they lose Emily shows the grieving process of the mom and she wants the husband to make sense of it shows the grieving process of the husband who has a dream about his daughter after she dies. And I actually think that this is one area where they added footage um, because I, I think I remember a dream sequence, but I'm pretty sure it did not include an adult version of Emily in her wedding dress. But in this one, it did. So he has this dream and then he realizes all the things that he's not going to be able to do for her. And he finally reaches out 
to his pastor for help. And so you see that journey. You see the journey of Javi, who gets this job at the Thread Factory only to be asked to do something um, unethical and face the possibility of losing his job. You see Shane, the divorced dad, have trouble because he's selling drugs to make extra money and he ends up getting arrested toward the end of the film. Um, And you see Ken Bevel's character um, deal with the growing up of his daughter and the fact that he wants to be actively involved in her dating life because he wants to protect her. So in each of these men's cases, you see that God calls them to fulfill their pledge, the pledge that they made. They have to fulfill it in different ways. And for David Thompson, the youngest of them all, he is charged with the challenge of, first of all, admitting that he has a daughter and then reaching out to his daughter's mother and saying, I am willing to take care of you. I'm willing to take care of her. And I'm sorry that I've neglected those responsibilities. Um, I would have liked to see more of the characters at the end of the movie. Um, because a lot of the, the, the things that had happened in the previous 10 years were talked about, but not necessarily observed. Um, so for the major spoiler alert, I just want to take a little bit of time to talk about the ending. Cause I really did like it. The ending takes place 10 years later. Um, and Ken Bevel, um, his character, he, uh, is now the sheriff of the department. And, uh, and you see how, uh, Adam Mitchell has invested in Shane Fuller's son because when Shane was locked up, he said, please take care of my son. And Adam said, yes, I will. And as, as a reflection to an earlier conversation and the earlier thing that happened with Nathan Hayes character, Ken Bevel, you saw Shane tell Adam Mitchell, don't let go of the wheel. And that was just really um, well done. I don't see a lot of the weaknesses that are present in some other Christian films. Like I said, I like the fact that they actually worked through these hard processes and it wasn't just a buttoned up happy ending and I remember thinking as I'm watching the ending how I would have buttoned up this ending. But the ending is basically Shane getting out of prison after 10 years and his buddies being there to welcome him to freedom and to catch him up on what happened um, throughout that decade. And they reflected on how their kids had changed Nathan Hayes' oldest daughter is married and expecting a grandchild. And it's kind of implied through some photos in the credits that he was surprised by twins. So that is kind of fun to watch. Um, 
So make sure you watch the credits if you watch this this film. And then they talked about Adam Mitchell's son, Dylan, being ready to get married, and then they showed a wedding picture of him. I think it might have been a wedding picture of the actual actor. So just some of those interesting things. There really wasn't a lot that I could complain about with this film. I thought it was really well done. It was really nuanced. The people were really going through a process of development and there was good humor. Um, one of the most humorous scenes is the snake King scene where they have Javi in the back of their squad car because he's planning to go out to lunch with them and then they have to pick up a criminal, um, at the last second. And so they have Javi pretend to be a criminal just to keep, the criminal they have in the back on edge and also as kind of a defense mechanism for Javi. So there's humor, there's truth. You have Nathan sharing the gospel with David Thompson. Uh, there's just, there's just really good stuff all the way around. Uh, I, I think one of the biggest things I'd like to see happen in a film is for married people to get to play a couple in a Kendrick's brothers film. And the reason that I say that is because they never have people kissing people that are other than their spouse in a Kendrick's brother movie, which I do appreciate, but some of their creative ways of avoiding that are a little bit corny, but like I said, I think overall this movie is spot on and it speaks to a need that is had. One of the more sobering uh, things that happens in the film is there's a gang member that gets initiated in and he gets beat up. And then, and then after he gets beat up, they say, you're, you're our family now. You're now a part of us. And you know, they welcome him supposedly with open arms as only a gang can. And, you know, that's supposed to be a good thing. But then in the end, when they get captured by the police, Nathan, who has talked to this guy because he was interested in his daughter, says, what are you doing here? And he says, I don't have anybody. And that's a gut-wrenching moment to realize that when people don't have any positive influences, then they'll take whatever help and whatever encouragement they can get, even if it comes from a negative place. And so I really think it's important for us to realize that as these things play out on the courageous screen, there's a, there's a reality. There's, there's a truth to the things that are being said and you just see it playing out in each of these men's lives. You know, for, for Javi, it's about standing up and being willing to be fired from his job to do the right thing. And he ends up getting promoted. So he's, he's protected for David Thompson. It's about providing for his daughter, even though he wrote her off and he just left her, but after he comes to Christ, he knows that he needs to be her dad. 
Um, for Adam Mitchell, it's losing his daughter, Emily, and then realizing that he needs to be there for his son and also realizing that he needs to do the right thing by his friend Shane when he finds out that his friend Shane is doing drugs. So all of these things uh, work in concert to tell a very good story. I remember um, when I first watched the film thinking that they could have done without one of the storylines because it is a lot of storylines at once. And as I've talked about in the past, having a lot of storylines makes it difficult. But at the same time, they wrote each storyline so well that I actually think it works. So I really applaud um, their work on this film. And I'm really excited for their next project, uh, which is called Life Mark, which is supposed to deal with the sanctity of human life. And of course, I will have a review of that when it comes out, Lord willing. Hopefully I can actually get to the theatrical release of it so it can come a little quicker than this one has. I think that one of the best things that this movie does, though, is as a man, it stokes the fire of manhood in you. And it's such a good antidote to the culture in which we find ourselves where we say there's no difference between a man and a woman. And I like the fact that they didn't take this like super ultra conservative stance on like dating, but when they dealt with dating, they did deal with it in a serious manner. And they had the character of Nathan Hayes daughter on there and had Nathan kind of give her the ultimatum of like, I I don't want to be against you dating, but I don't want you to date until you're at least 17, which I think is good, especially in this culture that we now live in where kids are talking about having boyfriends and girlfriends at 12 and 13 years old. And as we've talked about at the top of the show, uh, you know, disclosing their sexual identities or deciding their sexual identities much earlier than we ever would have even discussed these issues in the past. So I think Overall, it's just a really good film, and I give it a 5 out of 5. I don't give a 5 out of 5 to too many films. I try to be fair and not be overly exuberant, but this is just a really good, well-rounded film. I feel like every character, especially the main characters, you really know where they're coming from, and you feel for their story you kind of feel like you'd want to know more of their story. Like, I think that's one of the strengths of this film is just this idea that if they did a movie about David Thompson, or if they did a movie about Shane Fuller, if they dug into who Adam Mitchell was, those could make good movies on their own. I know there was one, um, guy who did a hobby cut of the film kind of, and focused on hobby story. Cause to him, it was the best story in the film. So, you know, I think there was someone in the film to resonate with everyone. And, of course, the storyline with Emily passing away suddenly and tragically, it really resonates with anybody else who's dealt with that. And our family certainly has. So it was very cathartic and beneficial for us 
to watch a film that talked about that and the process of recovery because I definitely saw myself there. Well, that's about all I have to share for my review of Courageous Legacy. I was able to rent it on Amazon Prime. It's available for rental in several places. I don't know that it's available for free streaming anywhere yet. I'm hoping it is because I would love for it to be a situation where somebody could stumble upon it and be benefited from it. And I just really appreciate the film. I think that the uh, legacy part and being able to advance 10 years uh, was a really good touch. I think I would have been tempted to do a complete sequel um, just to be able to take a little bit longer to talk about where the characters are and maybe come up with a new adventure they could be on. But I think overall it was a very good film. And as I said, I rate it five out of five. So I will simply say, go and watch this film and enjoy it with your family. You won't regret it. Before we go, I want to dip back into the speaking for him scrapbook as it were as I promised and share with you a clip from my 95th podcast and this is a conversation with Kevin McCreary Kevin is the voice that you hear at the end of each of my podcasts to this date um, because I I always had information that I wanted to share with people at the end of the show and I was always afraid of missing them so I wrote up a script about the things I wanted to share and had him record it so I can just play it at the end of every episode and it really helps me so I'm grateful for Kevin for that he has done other audio work for me as well and his wife Carmen actually uh, designed my logo so the logo that you see if you click on my website is her design and so I'm grateful for that so, needless to say, Kevin has become an important part of my ministry. I'm grateful to you, Kevin, for coming on the show a couple of times. Maybe we should uh, meet up again uh, via Zoom and do another interview just to catch up and see where you're at in your career and otherwise. I hope the Lord is blessing you. But here is Kevin McCreary talking about his faith in Jesus. As you may know from the title of my podcast, um, Speaking for Him is primarily focused on uh, Christian growth. Uh, we do like to have a good time, but we're also interested in knowing how people's spiritual journey is going. And so could you tell us a little bit about how you came to know uh, Jesus Christ and how he influences your work? Sure. Um, you know, I have to attribute a lot of... Uh, a lot of that to my parents because um, I, mean, I was just blessed to have parents who uh, who had who had made a commitment to raise me, uh, knowing about Christ, me and my my siblings, and um, and so I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, but then uh, it really, I think, going to college changes everybody, um, but. When I went to college and then I actually did some mission work in Argentina, um, that gave me some perspective on, like, what it means uh, to be, like, 
to follow Christ for myself. And not, I think it's been so much of a journey. Like, um, you know, I came to Christ. I, I, I prayed a prayer when I was very young. I was probably four. Um, but then I've learned so much. And I think every year, you know, I look back at who I was a year ago and think, you know, wow, I was claiming to be a Christian then, but I, God's taught me so much, and the Holy Spirit's revealed so much to me, and I've grown um, that, you know, I'm like, man, I, I was doing really stupid things back then, and, um, you know, I can't believe I, I claimed to be a Christian then. I think that's why I've always thought, like, I can't imagine writing a book because, uh, for one, I don't know how to spell, also, uh, because I, I can't imagine, like, feeling confident enough to, like, write something down and say, this is what I believe about uh, Christ and about my faith. And then, uh, because I feel like within a year I would I would regret it and feel like God had taught me so much about it. So uh, it was my parents and then um, and then really living in a foreign country and, and a very strong Catholic country and seeing a lot of people... Um, who were, even though Catholicism in South America is, like, through name, like, by name, like, the, the president has to be Catholic. So a lot of times when people are running for president, they will convert, convert to Catholicism just so they can run for president. And there's a lot of that sort of thing where it's not very genuine, it's just very cultural, and in a way it's superstition. And seeing that um, really made me think about where do I have that in my life? Am I going to church? Am I believing what I believe? Do I believe things because it's in the Bible, or do I believe it because that's what everybody's told me I need to believe? And so it really was eye-opening and, and good to have a time where I, would, where I you know, started to and continued to reevaluate where I stand in my faith and if it truly is uh, if it truly lines up with what the Bible says or if it's just what man and tradition are saying. And if it is just tradition, if it is just man, uh, then the Bible has to, the Word of God has to, uh, has to be above that. So. Absolutely. Thank you again to Kevin McCreary for being a part of Speaking for Him and for doing that interview and all of the things that he did after that. I'm so grateful to everyone that makes speaking for him what it is. We are going to continue to share with you more from the speaking for him scrapbook as we move forward toward that 10th anniversary show. So if there are any episodes that resonated with you that you think I should pull audio from, please let me know with the contact information that will run at the end of the show. I hope that you have a wonderful week and that you keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.